software products are distributed across more and more servers as they grow. With the proliferation of cloud providers like AWS, these large infrastructure deployments have become much easier to create. And with the maturity of Kubernetes, these distributed applications are more reliable. Developers and operators can use a service mesh to manage the interactions between services across this distributed application. A service mesh is a layer across a distributed microservices application that consists of several service proxy sidecars. Each service proxy sidecar runs alongside a service within that cluster. And there's also a central control plane component of the service mesh. And the central control plane communicates with those sidecar proxies. A service mesh has many uses. Every request and response within the application gets routed through the service proxy that's associated with that service. And that can improve observability, it can improve traffic control to different instances of the service, and it can also introduce circuit breaking in case of an instance failure. The central control plane can be used to manage network policy throughout the entire system. So if you want to impose certain security constraints, certain authorization patterns, you can do that with this centralized service mesh control plane. And we've done shows about each of the different components of a service mesh system, including different types of service proxies like Envoy. We've done a show on Kong that's coming up and... Also, we've talked a little bit about Nginx. We've also talked about the service meshes built on top of these proxies. Linkerd, which is made by the startup Buoyant, was the first service mesh product to come to market. And it has the most production use, at least in terms of public success stories, with customers like Expedia and Monzo Bank. Istio is a more recent service mesh, which uses the Envoy service proxy. Istio came out of Google, and it's also supported by IBM. And this sets up a classic competition between a startup, Buoyant, and the large incumbents that are trying to change the mindshare and introduce their competing product against that startup with a bit of a head start. It's an interesting competitive story, the service mesh landscape, and William Morgan is the CEO of Buoyant. He joins the show today to talk about the use cases and the adoption of the service mesh. He also talks about the business landscape of the service mesh category and more generally how to compete with giant cloud providers. I want to mention that we have a survey up and we would really love your feedback. You can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com survey and give us your feedback. Please tell us what we're doing wrong. And also, if you feel like it, tell us what we're doing right. We would love to grow the listenership, and we would also love to make for a better listening experience for you. And if you also want to sign up for our newsletter, you can do that by going to softwareengineeringdaily.com and clicking newsletter in the upper right. We have a weekly newsletter that goes out with some episodes and some content that we've been reading. So with that, let's get on with this episode. William Morgan, you are the CEO at Buoyant. Welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Jeff. It is a pleasure to be back. 
Indeed. So we've done several shows of the last few years. You were very early to seeing the use of a service mesh or a service proxy layer from your time at Twitter. People can go back and listen to those previous episodes. We should do a brief refresher on the purposes of a service mesh before we get into the contemporary subjects. Explain what a service mesh is. Sure. So a service mesh is a layer of infrastructure that at its heart is managing the communication that happens between microservices. So the idea is that you are, you know, you've deployed a lot of microservices and typically this is done in a kind of a, you know, in a, in a cloud native stack. So you've got everything's containerized with Docker and you've got a, a container orchestrator like Kubernetes that's managing this, this pool of hardware and kind of deploying the containers for you. And the service mesh sits in between each of the services and as the services communicate, so A will talk to B, talk to C, talk to D, you know, talk to a database. These chains can get can get quite long. Service mesh will handle a set of things for you. So it'll handle things, a set of reliability features. It'll handle a set of uh, security features. And then it'll handle a set of observability or visibility features for how the traffic flows between those services. So let's say there's some kind of high-level request to the surface of my application. Take me through the life cycle of a request without a service mesh versus with a service mesh. Sure. So in both cases, you know, a request will come in. Let's say this is a, you know, an API that you're serving. Okay. And uh, I used to work at Twitter, so I'm very familiar with the Twitter API. So you're using your, your cell phone and you're like, okay, show me the latest tweets. And your Twitter client on your phone will make a call to the Twitter API. And that'll come in through, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of stuff that happens at the edge to actually get that traffic. But then once it's inside the Twitter kind of application on the server side, we'll start going through a series of basically RPC calls, which can be made over, you know, it can be done in a variety of ways. A very common pattern is just, just to use HTTP. Um, although if the newer, fancier world is, is moving a bit to uh, gRPC. And so, you know, you'll have some service that'll take that request from the client and it'll, you know, make a call to another service. That service will make an, a third call, a fourth call. And the entire time the client is waiting, right? So my phone is like waiting for a response. And if that response doesn't come back in, you know, some number of seconds or milliseconds, then my client will retry and, you know, eventually it'll fail. And internally, you'll have that same you'll have that same behavior too, where you know service A talks to service B, and, and it'll say, "Okay, I need a response." And if B doesn't respond in time, then that's considered a failure, and maybe you retry, or maybe you don't. So your question was, with the service mesh versus without a service mesh. So in both cases, that that communication has to happen. The big difference is with the service mesh, the the way it works is you insert these little proxies in between each of those calls. Right, and the proxies act as these kind of out-of-process network stacks. And the reason why we do that rather than you know, building a, a client library is because it allows us to insert that logic across our application without having to worry about what language the service is written in or what framework it's using or anything like that. And in fact, in these bigger applications, you'll often have services that are written in different, in different languages. And so the service mesh gives you this uniform layer of reliability and visibility and security and, and all the features independent of you know how the application itself is constructed. So if you have lots of services and several instances for each service, 
your service mesh can route intelligently. It can fight the right instance to server request. It can do the circuit breaking pattern. Explain how the service mesh has the data and the instrumentation to do all this complex routing. Yeah, so a lot of the the kind of goal of the service mesh is to, to insert these proxies in a way where the application doesn't really care right, or doesn't really know, right? So the application thinks that it's, you know, service A is just talking to service B, you know, and, and through either IP tables of magic or through some other techniques, we wire that communication through the proxies and the proxies are configured to understand, you know, what it takes to actually deliver that request reliably. So, you know, A talking to B, it'll go through a proxy. The service mesh proxy will measure how long it takes to get there. It'll kind of know what the destination is. So it'll in- integrate in a system like Kubernetes. It, it understands enough of the Kubernetes API to say, okay, service A wants to talk to service B. B is, you know, these 50 pods that are on these different IP addresses and, and IP address and port pairs. And I'm going to pick one to send it to based on a bunch of logic around how reliable the things are or maybe how fast they are. And if there's TLS involved, then I'm going to like, you know, I'm going to encrypt on this side and then I'm going to decrypt on the other side. So it, it gets that information either from the metadata of the request or from what it knows around uh, about the environment. So it understands enough about Kubernetes to be able to do that routing in a way that makes sense. You've been working on Buoyant for three years, four years? Uh, about three and a half. How is your perspective on what a service mesh or a service proxy, this service layer that we're talking about, how has that evolved since you started the company and you've seen more customer use cases, you've seen the evolution of different infrastructure patterns? What's changed? Oh my gosh, so much has changed. <laughs> so when we when we started working on, on Linkerd, you know, which is our primary project, and it's a CNCF project, I think it, it's the only CNCF service mesh because Envoy is now considered a service proxy, which is slightly different, uh, also in the CNCF. But when we first started working on Linkerd, the term service mesh didn't exist. And in fact, we didn't even know what to call this thing. You know, we, we had seen this pattern from our work at Twitter, and we knew that it was a good pattern, but it didn't have a name. And so we were calling it like an application router, or maybe we called it an RPC proxy. And you know, you'd have to kind of explain to people what that was and what that meant. At some point, we had the brilliant marketing idea to just give it a new name so we didn't have to keep differentiating it from like HA proxy and, and things like that. And so we were like, well, it's kind of meshing all these services, so we'll call it a service mesh. And that term really caught on. Right? And so Linkerd, kind of by virtue of being widely adopted, spread this term, you know, service mesh, and the model caught on. And now, fast forward a couple of years, you know, the service mesh, now there's like 20 different service mesh projects and they all have very, very different implementations and different goals, but the core model is the same, which is that we want to extract that logic out of the application and we want to we want to deal with it at the infrastructure level. And there's a couple of key things that have happened as part of the kind of ecosystem around it, especially in Kubernetes and, and Docker, that have made this model suddenly very, very relevant. So there's this very niche world of back-end infrastructure analysts and journalists, this world that I'm in, where the topic of a service mesh is like a way to start a conversation. It's like a water cooler or a cocktail party conversation. The idea of service mesh, like, do you need one or not? Is this is this a giant platform business or not? It's become a conversation starter, which is 
you know, kind of weird for, for people like me who I'm not writing software. I don't have any privileged understanding of what is or what is not something that will become a, an infrastructure trend. There are companies who have made very good use of a service mesh. Like you have companies like Monzo Bank, who we had on the show. You have PayPal, Expedia. And then there are people who say you don't need a service mesh if you're most companies. It's just going to add you extra complexity. This is the microservices industrial complex, the service mesh. The service mesh debates seem to have this strange political edge to them sometimes. Am I imagining this or do you see this same kind of fervent debate happening? I don't think this is anything that is unique to the service mesh. I think anytime there is a new piece of technology that's being introduced, you always have these debates of like, is this really necessary? Gosh, we've got all this other machinery and now you want us to add like this other layer of complexity. I just wrapped my head around Kubernetes. I just wrapped my head around Docker. I just wrapped my head around microservices. And now you're telling me there's this other thing. So I think it's a very natural reaction. And I think, you know, if you rewind history and you go back five years or 10 years or, or, or 20 years, you'll find the same debate happening about pretty much every technology. In some cases, those technologies went on to transform the world. And in some cases, they really were nonsense and, and not that useful. So <laughs> you know, in retrospect, everything is, is clear, but it's a, it's a common reaction. It, it does seem like most of the time, these technologies do end up being useful enough to have a large market. Like you, you were just saying, there are products that have come out and then they're not that useful. Uh, you know, I guess you could you could talk about like Betamax or something, but in the software world, can you think of an example of, of something where it just ended up not being useful enough for a big enough market to build a business? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think the history of software is, is littered with those ideas, possibly more than the other way around. You know, I think you could look at something like the semantic web, for example. That was a huge topic of thought leadership for a very, very long time. And it was backed by, you know, the same people who had invented the World Wide Web. You know, it's, it wasn't just made up, you know, by a bunch of randos. This was like serious thought put into this. And it never really went anywhere. You could make similar arguments to, you know, although maybe they, they took off a little bit more than Semantic Web did. You could look at things like SOAP RPC, or you could look at some of the, the like more dense web specs around, gosh, there, you know, there were all these WS-STAR specifications that became very, very intense, you know, and had a lot of thought put into them, but never really caught on. So just because a service mesh is popular doesn't mean that it's, that's going to last. But I do think it is, and, and for other reasons, just not popularity-based ones. So what kinds of companies really need a service mesh? Or is it something where you would just say, I'm standing up a Kubernetes cluster anyway, I might as well have a service mesh if I can just one-click it? Who is it for? So it really is less about the company, it's more about the technology stack. And in particular, it's if you are adopting microservices. And we've been talking about microservices for you know, 10, 15 years as, a, as, a, as an industry. What, maybe not 15 years, I don't know. What has changed in that time is basically the rise of this cloud native stack. So the rise of something like Docker and, 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 and Kubernetes has really reduced the cost of adopting microservices. And I'm going to go on a little microservices tangent here because this is really kind of fundamentally what the service mesh enables. So when I was at Twitter, and this was starting you know almost eight years ago, so 2010, this was a tail end of the uh, kind of monolithic Ruby on Rails infrastructure. 
it was falling over. There were all sorts of problems. I have all sorts of hilarious stories about the, the many problems we had. And we've retold those on previous episodes. Yeah, exactly. So please refer back to previous episodes. I'm not going to retell them. I've probably forgotten them all by now. You've got all the good ones uh, on tape. But that investment into, you know, over the next five years at Twitter into Twitter's massive microservices architecture was insanely complicated and insanely expensive. There were so many engineering hours, engineering years that were poured into that transformation. Now, as a startup, you roll up to the table with with Docker and Kubernetes, and you already have something that's better than what Twitter probably will ever be able to achieve. And so that what those things have done is they've dramatically lowered the cost to adopting microservices. We have startups who, you know, who we talk to who are five developers and have 35 microservices or even more, 100 microservices, because once you are using, once you have one service, Deployed in Kubernetes, deploying another one is kind of the same, and deploying ten more is kind of the same, except except for once you actually have those things running, right? Now now life gets a little more complicated, and that's where the service mesh comes in. So there are some large companies using Linkerd in addition to Monzo Bank and Expedia and PayPal. There's there's several others. When you talk to these companies about service mesh, how do they describe what is valuable about it? Yeah, so I think the value propositions are usually, they fall into these three categories. One is purely around the visibility or observability layer. So what the service mesh can give you, because all these proxies are running at kind of layer five through layer seven in in the OSI networking model, they're able to give you metrics around success rates, and request volumes and latencies. These are kind of like the what we call the golden metrics, right? These are the things that you really care about because if the success rate goes down, well, someone's waking up to fix it at 3 a.m. Now, there's a lot of other metrics that, you, that are application-specific that the service mesh can't help you with, right? There you're kind of, you know, you've got to instrument your application. That's always been the case. But in terms of having a uniform layer of observability across the entire stack, well, service mesh is a huge win. So that's one bucket. There's a bucket around security features, certainly, you know, in terms of both encryption everywhere. So the service mesh can, and Linkerd is used heavily for, for this purpose, create, uh, initiate a TLS connection and then terminate it on the other end. So you have an encryption and authentication in between different services without having to do a whole lot of work. And in fact, in the latest version of Linkerd, we ship with a CA, so we'll ship with a certificate authority that'll do the key distribution for you. And so you literally don't have to do anything to get validated TLS certs spread everywhere in your application. And then finally, the third bucket is the reliability features, things like retries and and circuit breaking, like you mentioned before. Yeah, I did a couple shows recently, one on Spiffy, and which is Spiffy is a workload identification system and open policy agent, which is for managing the policies throughout your organization. And it was kind of unexpected, but in these shows, it seemed like the service mesh was a great way to deploy and manage policies. Is that consistent with what you're seeing? How are you seeing people managing networking policies and workload authentication, workload identification across Kubernetes clusters. Yeah, so it's definitely, uh, the, the service mesh is a uh, extremely convenient way of deploying the, you know, kind of the core component that you need for policy, which is enforcement, right? So because we've done all this work already to kind of wire up the proxies so that traffic is going through them automatically, when A talks to B, when service A talks to service B, 
you know, by default, the service mesh is just proxying and doing its best, but the service mesh could say no, right? It could say no, A is not allowed to talk to B based on some policy. So how you define that policy, how you describe it, how you iterate on it, all that stuff is, you know, is kind of complicated, a complicated set of concerns that's outside of the, the service mesh's sphere of influence, but how you enforce it and who's actually saying, yes, this request is allowed or no, it's not allowed, is uh, that's 100% what the service mesh is positioned to do. So you often find those things going hand in hand. And in fact, there's a huge, I'm sure you touched on this in the in those podcasts as well, but there's a huge shift that's happening in the world of kind of enterprise security right now where everything used to be done at the perimeter. And once you were inside the perimeter, you were like in the, you know, in the like soft underbelly of the, of the beast and, you know, everything was allowed. People are moving away from that model to a world where even when you're inside, even if you manage to get inside there, everything is super locked down. Yeah, uh, zero trust networking. When you are dealing with these different enterprises that are adopting service mesh, are you seeing them with one giant Kubernetes cluster or a series of smaller Kubernetes clusters? How many Kubernetes clusters are we talking about at, at these large companies? And, and are they managing all of these clusters with one service mesh? How does that look? Yeah, so the world is still figuring this out. <laughs> you know, it's rare to see only one Kubernetes cluster. Typically, at a minimum, you have you know one as a kind of a staging environment, one as a prod environment, one you know you may have several as kind of developer environments as well. That's not even including the the mini cube or or Docker for Mac Kubernetes mode that you'd run on your laptop. But the the topic of federation and how that works and how that interacts with the service mesh. It's still very early, and my suspicion is that's going to be a huge topic of development and, and discussion in the upcoming year. Right. So do these multiple clusters get managed with one service mesh? So that's also a kind of a topic of some discussion. I think our model so far is to keep the service mesh on a per-cluster basis, or possibly at least the Linkerd model is you keep the service mesh on a per-cluster basis and even possibly on a per-namespace basis. So you can actually run Linkerd in a, in a single namespace, and there are some users for whom that is a big plus. And then to deal with cross-cluster communication at a separate layer. And that kind of fits in with how we've seen most folks adopting Kubernetes, but it's far from you know set in stone at this point. So what about monitoring? How does a service mesh fit in with a monitoring stack like you know you've got Prometheus and Datadog and all these other tools you might be using? How can a service mesh be useful in this stack? Yeah, so it's really designed to complement those systems and, and, and not to replace them. So Linkerd, for example, the, the 2.x branch ships with a little Prometheus installation as part of the control plane. And that powers a bunch of the UI and it powers a bunch of the CLI. So you can actually run these CLI commands that are, that are kind of equivalent to something like top. For looking at processes, we, we have this equivalent, which is top for your services, like show me all the services that are running sorted by request volume or sorted by success rate or, or something like that. And then there's Grafana dashboards and things like that. But the way that we, the way that we do it is we try and we make it very easy for you to get those metrics, but they're not supposed to stay in Linkerd for the long term, right? Your, your Linkerd will expire those metrics after some number of hours. And you're supposed to extract them and put them into a real long-term time series database, whether that's your own Prometheus cluster that you're running, whether it's Datadog, whether it's something else. 
And what the service mesh is very good at doing, what Linkerd is very good at doing, is getting those golden metrics per service, certainly, and giving those to you on a uniform basis across your your cluster. That's not the end of the metric story. There's a lot more you have to do. And actually, in this is a great time to have that question because we're about to release Linkerd 2.1. In 2.1, we have something that I haven't seen anyone else do before, which is we can give you per path or per route metrics. So it's not just service A, you know, has a success rate of 89%. You know, it's, oh, this call to service A, you know, slash users slash, you know, whatever, get or something. That's not a great example. You know, is, is that 100%? But, you know, a post to slash users, well, that's failing 12% of the time. So we can break things out per route. And that's a huge step forward for platform owners and for, for service owners who have to operate these services. Yeah, that's kind of like a distributed trace sort of thing out of the box. Yeah, that's right. That's right. There are a lot of similarities. Now, we don't do the full tracing. And in fact, you can, you know, nothing precludes you from doing it as as normal. Um, But we can give you a lot of the value without you having to do any work. In fact, we can even draw the application topology for you, right? We can show you a map of A talks to B and B talks to C and C talks to X and Y and B and C talk together. And we can generate that map on a real-time basis because the proxies see all that data and they report it to the control plane and the control plane can aggregate it. That's typically something that you have had to implement distributed tracing to get, but we can draw that picture for you without you having to do any work. That's pretty useful. So you started with the first version of Linkerd, and then you built Conduit, which was a new service mesh that was written in Rust, and then Conduit got integrated into Linkerd 2.0. Now you're on the cusp of releasing 2.1. Take me through the product evolution. Yeah, so now you're getting into kind of the sordid history. <laughs> That's all right. It's all sorted. Yeah, Every, Everyone's right. history is sorted in one way or another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so this is a little bit of how the, the sausage got made. So the initial version of Linkerd, what we call the Linkerd1.x branch, and by the way, we continue to maintain this actively, and, and we invest a lot of time and energy in, in 1.x, even though we, we have 2.x as well. 1.x was built on top of the Twitter stack directly, right? We were very familiar with that stack. It was production grade. And so we built Linkerd 1.x on top of Scala and Netty and Finagle and this ecosystem that Twitter had uh, really advanced of having very high performance, high throughput network operations on the JVM. That got us a lot of adoption. And, and in fact, many of our biggest adopters, you know, are on the 1.x branch. 2.x is, is, is much more recent. But the JVM is very good at scaling up. What it is not good at is scaling down. And in this world where we are distributing lots and lots of proxies everywhere, and you might have 50 or 100 or even more proxies running on a single node, it kind of sucks to run 100 JVMs on a single node, right? As much work as we do into, into squeezing it down, and we can actually get it quite, quite small, it's still painful to do that. So starting sometime last year, 2017, we were investing heavily in a what was at the time a very experimental idea, which was, okay, can we get off of the JVM entirely and can we build a networking stack that is in native code? And the language we chose to do that was Rust. And Rust was a bit of a risky choice because unlike the JVM, it did not have, certainly not at that time, a fully fleshed out networking stack that we could rely on. So we had to invest pretty heavily in building out some of those core networking components, things like uh, Tokyo and, and Tower and H2. These are all core networking libraries that Buoyant and that Linkerd has spent a lot of time and energy on. 
And we call that conduit because Linkerd was had a very good reputation of being this production-grade system, and, and we were all a little nervous of just releasing a new thing in Linkerd that, that had not gone through the extensive vetting in production that, that Linkerd had. But then fast forward, you know, maybe not quite a year, but almost a year, and this this thing, you know, this, this idea of using Rust, and then on the control plane, uh, we were using Go was all shaping up extremely well. Like it was a risky choice, but the, the bet was really paying off. And we found, found ourselves in a point where everything we were doing with Conduit, we knew had to be the future of Linkerd as well. And so we merged the Conduit code base into Linkerd and, and a month or two later, that became the first version of the 2.x branch. So that was Linkerd 2.0. And so 2.0 now is off the JVM entirely. Still gives you the same, you know, still has the same value props around visibility and security and and performance and reliability and all those things, but a very new code base and uh, much better performance as well as uh, much better resource utilization. So a service mesh is something that is deep in the stack. This is a low-level piece of infrastructure. How do you test these new service mesh versions as you build them and make sure that they're production ready. What's the testing and release process? Yeah, we just throw it out there and, you know, see what happens. <laughs> okay. Just like a podcast. It's open source. Hey. <laughs> no, we have a pretty rigorous set of tests that we run. One of the advantages of being a CNCF project is that there is a, a community cluster that we rely on quite heavily to run these test suites. So every time a commit gets merged into master, it runs through a pretty rigorous test, both uh, kind of integration and functional testing, but also uh, performance testing. And so we have, you know, Linkerd is open source, but there are many companies who build their core infrastructure on top of it. And so just throwing it over the wall would not, would not feel right at all. So in the last year, what's the hardest engineering problem you've had to solve? This is a question I've started to ask more and more people very broad question, but tell me the hardest thing you've had to solve. Yeah, that's an interesting, that's a really interesting question. So that's probably a better question for someone who writes code, because these days all I write are uh, emails. Sometimes they're emails describing code. But I'll, I'll tell you what I do know, which is what I, one of the things I think has been tricky to tackle, but that has been really awesome is how is the interplay between memory management and network performance in the at the proxy level. And so in the JVM, in the 1.x branch of, of Linkerd, you know, we, we can rely on the JVM, which has a very sophisticated garbage collector. And, you know, we can kind of allocate memory. You have to be a little careful about how you do it, but you can allocate memory as part of the request and then not worry too much about it because, you know, the garbage collector is very finely tuned and it'll, and it'll scoop up that memory afterwards. Now, the, so that makes writing the code a little bit easier, but what it means is that every once in a while, the garbage collector you know, rears its ugly head and says, okay, I need to spend a couple tens of milliseconds or 100 milliseconds or something collecting all this garbage. And when that happens, your network performance goes down, right? And, and we characterize this performance in terms of things like tail latencies, where we say, if you look at the P99, you know, we talk about the P99 of the proxy, and that's the latency that happens, you know, the worst 1% of latency that happens. And typically that P99, when that number is high, it's because the garbage collector reared its ugly head. So now 
In the Rust world, this is where things get interesting because Rust is purely manually managed memory. So you, rather than having a garbage collector, you know, and, and even Go, right, is, which has very good performance, still has a garbage collector and, and still works largely by growing the heap. And so there's a bunch of reasons why Go was a great choice for us in the control plane, but we didn't want to write the proxies in it. In Rust, right, you have, there's no garbage collector at all, right? So you, you never have to worry about that. But instead, you're paying the price because you're doing manual memory allocation. So a lot of the work that we did in these network and uh, kind of the underlying network libraries was how do you at the kind of the programming level, how do you get, you know, you want the benefit, you want kind of the best of both worlds. On the one hand, you never want to incur, you know, a cost for allocating and deallocating memory except for kind of the minimum, absolute minimum cost that you, that, that you, yeah. that you can. On the other hand, you don't want to end up with this really complicated spaghetti code of callbacks upon callbacks and, and kind of this tortuous logic that will be difficult to maintain. And so Rust gives you the ability to build what they call zero-cost abstractions. So you can say, hey, I have – this is a future, right? And it's a future, if you're familiar with JavaScript or, or with Finagle, you know, it's a way of expressing kind of a pending computation, a computation that may or may not have happened or a call that may or may not have returned. And so you can build in the proxies – We've gotten to the point where we can build, using futures and other kind of zero-cost abstractions, ways of allocating. So when a request comes in, we allocate all the memory that we need for that request. And when the request terminates, we deallocate all that memory. We do it all incredibly quickly. And by doing it on a per-request basis, that means that our latency distribution is extremely sharp. So that means we don't have these long tail latencies because we don't have a garbage collector. And at the same time, the code is kind of, uh, you know, it doesn't end up being this crazy mess of spaghetti callbacks. It is this zero cost, you know, very immediate, I just delete the future and everything else happens. So that's probably the hardest uh, challenge that, that, that I'm aware of that we've had to tackle over the past year. I feel like memory management is at risk of becoming like a lost art. Is it hard to find people who can program Rust code? I'd say yes and no. Like on the one hand, it is a complicated language, right? It's, it is. It requires some study and some thought to, to really master it. Um, and I'll contrast that with, with Go. Like I said, we use Go for the control plane. And the barrier to Go, what I like about Go is that the barrier to entry is quite low, you know, relative to, certainly relative to something like Rust. And so we have a lot of external contributions that happen on the control plane because it's easy for people to pick up Go. On the Rust side, that barrier to entry is, is difficult, but it's also the kind of language that people get really excited about because it's so cool. It also has a really welcoming and really accepting community, which is rare, I think, in a very hardcore systems language. You expect the community around that to be like kind of the, the worst, angriest people. But actually, that Rust community is super friendly, super, super welcoming and really motivated by this idea of lowering the barrier to entry for, for systems programming, it has been, I guess, medium difficult. So I know you're probably spending most of your time in your inbox or maybe on an Asana board these days or on LinkedIn, perhaps. What are you doing in terms of broad company scaling? How has Buoyant evolved in the last year? And what are some of the challenges there on that company scaling front that you've had to solve? So for us, you know, I think we're a little atypical in that, you know, kind of the, you know, you have this vision of the startup being like always in this hyper scaling mode and like we've got to add 50 people now and 500 now we're at 5 million. For us, open source can be done. I think the realization we've had is that open source can be done very efficiently. 
right? We don't have to have everyone in San Francisco. We don't have to, you know, have these lengthy uh, kind of product, you know, uh, processes. Because it's an open source project, we really have a lot of advantages. And also because we do a lot of, we do invest a lot of our time and energy in the community around Linkerd. Um, it really is a really is a community project, and so buoyant is lean and mean, which is so you know the uh, the way that we, we like it, and we just do our best to keep the community around Linkerd in a really healthy and engaged shape. Amen to that. I can support your position on very small, efficient companies because we only have like two or three people here. <laughs> yeah, and life life is a lot easier. You know, it when, is. when you can, when communicate, when that communication burden is not that high. That's right. So in terms of the competitive landscape, Google came out with the Istio service mesh. That was about a year ago. Well, I guess it was a Google open source project. It, I think IBM and some other companies were also involved. What was interesting to me is that it seemed like even though Istio came out of Google, Linkerd was still the, I guess, the vendor of choice because you had just been working on it longer. And I think when people go to find a service mesh to purchase, they're going to go, they want one that's battle tested because this is something they're going to insert in the core of their infrastructure. So did Istio affect your product strategy or your sales process at all? It affected it in the sense that it was extremely helpful to have a company like Google enter you know the service mesh space and say hey we have a service mesh project too because as a startup you know you can you, <laughs> you can only make so much noise this is like this is basically called market validation so istio coming into the market was huge validation of the fact that the service mesh was a real pattern and a real model that had that had value you know there's only so much we could say as as buoyant and so it was very helpful and i think you know, in response to that is also why you've seen, you know, the, the 17 other service mesh projects that have cropped up. People are realizing that this is a real thing. You know, there, there is some real value here. But it's that said, it's still the, the tip of the iceberg. You know, the companies that can adopt the service mesh today are still very much the ones who are, you know, kind of on the bleeding edge of this cloud native ecosystem. So there's a long, long roadmap ahead of us in getting the rest of the world to, to get the value of the service mesh. Yeah, and then more recently, AWS came out with their App Mesh, which is a service mesh product. Is that also a validation moment, or is that any more of a, a concern? I guess you could consider it further validation. I mean, you know, we kind of, uh, it's an additional 5% validation, I guess. Are they concerns? I don't know if they, uh, what I call them, concerns. Well, honestly, I haven't really looked at App Mesh uh, very much. Istio, we're, we're quite familiar with, mostly because it's been around um, longer. No, I wouldn't call them concerns. Like, I think the goal for all these projects is to provide the service mesh value props to the user, and you know, it's really a question of well, which trade-offs are you making, and how tightly integrate, integrated are you with Google Cloud or with AWS or or whatever else. But at the end of the day, and at least in in my mind. If you can get people using something like Linkerd and getting the value out of it, then you're, you've done a good thing for the world. Yeah. Do you have a perspective on how much... So like if, if somebody's already on AWS, to what degree are they just defaulting to the AWS services? Because the sense that I get when I talk to companies that are making these purchasing decisions, for example, a purchasing decision between 
Elasticsearch hosted on AWS versus going with Elastic's enterprise version. So when a customer is making this buying decision for some enterprise product that's going to be at the core of their infrastructure, they are going to look at the AWS option, but it seems like they look quite seriously outside of AWS as well. And I've, I I feel like there might have been overblown concern about, oh, you know, AWS has uh, every single option available. How can anyone else in the market compete? It does seem like people are able to develop their own independent businesses that are superior or at least highly competitive with the AWS product. So what has it been like kind of positioning yourself as an independent software company to the side of the cloud providers? And and to what degree do you feel like the cloud providers have this really strong advantage of already having a market channel? Well, I think, you know, if if Linkerd were a commercial product, I would have a very different opinion, right? Because then everyone using, you know, every every person who was using some AWS solution and not using Linkerd was like less money into my pocket. Because it's an open source project, I think my attitude is is a little different. And I do think that people are increasingly aware, certainly the companies that we talk to are increasingly aware of vendor lock-in and increasingly kind of less likely to just make a decision based on, oh, well, AWS has it, so we're, and we're already paying them a bunch of money, so let's just do it, right? It's not, <laughs> that's, that might have been the case, uh, you know, five, ten years ago, but I don't think it's the case now. And then I guess the third thing is, you know, technology choices, uh, and I think this has been very heartening to see, but technology choices are increasingly being made by engineers, you know, uh, kind of the boots on the ground engineers, right? So it's not the CTO mandating, hey, we have to use app mesh because we, you know, have an AWS strategy or something. It is engineers on the on the ground saying, hey, we're looking at these three options, and of these, Linkerd is the best, and therefore we're going to use Linkerd. That's been great to see because it means that as long as Linkerd is the best project, you know, or like, well, you know, best is a loaded word. As long as Linkerd kind of meets the needs in kind of the most immediate way, let's put it that way, then they'll adopt Linkerd, and that's kind of how it should be. And I guess finally, you know, I think the the cloud providers, you know, certainly color the nature of their projects, right? If you look at something like Istio, Istio, in my mind at least, is very much designed to be something that Google will run for you, right? It's, it's got every feature ever known to man, it's got every feature checkbox, but it's very complex to operate, it's very large, takes a lot of memory, there's you know a big kind of cognitive burden to understanding all the new APIs. And I think that makes sense as something that you would, that GCP would run for you because then the you know that burden isn't really there. You just care about that feature, feature checkbox. The trade-offs for Linkerd are, are very different, right? We we do want people to adopt it. We want people to operate it. And so the cognitive overhead and kind of the resource consumption of the both the proxies and the control plane are very much top of mind concerns for us. And so you know it's just it's a very different focus for the project. Yeah. We had a few shows a while ago about the open source business model discussion, and this was around the time of the whole Commons Clause, Redis Labs question. What's been your experience building a business around open source, and what was your reaction to that Commons Clause discussion. So I can understand why you would want to do something like that. As a startup operator, you know, I I guess I very naturally have that perspective. I think if 
our business model were you know selling Linkerd Plus or or Linkerd Enterprise or something, then that's kind of a you know that's probably a direction I would be thinking about too. For us right now, you know, I Linkerd is not a product that we are going to sell. I think it's really really important to us for Linkerd to be a first class community project for there to be a healthy engaged community around it. Buoyant does sell support for it. But that is, you know, it's not a different version of Linkerd. We support the, the open source. And so we've kind of skirted a lot of these issues in that our goal, you know, the software that we do want to sell is really not the open source software. Is the, do you think the support business is big enough to, to be a, a long-term company? Or do you think you'll end up developing additional products in addition to the support business? I think the support business is extremely healthy for us. And I think it's necessary for Linkerd adoption. But I don't think it's the long-term, certainly not the long-term business model for us. I think we have to do it because it's good for the project. But yeah, I, I think it would be difficult to build a really scalable business purely on top of support. The example that everyone gives is like the, you know, the, the counter example or the exception that proves a rule is, is Red Hat. And I think there's a bunch of, you know, interesting questions around why they were able to do it. Um, but it's also, it's not what we want to do. So I, I do want to continue providing support because it's healthy and it's good, but it's not the long-term goal. I think it's a great strategy because the thing is, if service mesh is a thing you want, if it's not the semantic web of Kubernetes, then there's going to be a lot of stuff built on top of it. And if you do support in the early days, you get a ton of customer interaction and you don't set yourself down a path of building products over eagerly. You just kind of build this, you know, steady support contract revenue and then you can kind of build products opportunistically. That's right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And if you look at, you know, my view of the service mesh, very similar to my view of of Kubernetes and of Docker and and kind of what I echoes what I said in the very beginning of this conversation, which is that all of these things are enablers, right? They're enablers of microservices, right? These are all kind of technology choices that allow us to run and to build our software as lots and lots of services that interact. And that transformation is a very profound transformation, not just at the technology level, but at the organizational level. And that's where I think things get interesting for a company like Buoyant. What are the things that a, beyond just the core technology, what are the things that a company that is adopting this cloud native stack need needs in order to kind of function at the organizational level in a world where now, you know, the structure of engineering team is different because you know, you've got different teams supporting different services. And as a result of that, the structure of how HR works is different and the structure of how the finance department works is different. Right. Once you adopt microservices, things change in the company. And that's where that's where things get really interesting for Buoyant, the company, as opposed to Linkerd, the open source project. And so another changing trend is like people are going to are going to lean more and more into functions as a service, other managed services on these cloud providers. Do you see an opportunity to instrument those with some kind of service mesh thing or do you just expect to be a service mesh over the the long-lived services that people are deploying themselves and that will be wholly separate from your managed database or your your functions as a service that are running on AWS. I don't think it was an accident that Knative was built on top of something like Istio, right? I think this, this what the service mesh provides are some fundamental components that any kind of 
function as a service style system is going to want to leverage. So I think the two will go hand in hand. Very interesting. Well, we're on the cusp of going to KubeCon. I think it's going to be gigantic. There's like 7,500 people that are going to KubeCon North America. What are you looking forward to at the conference? Well, you know, I find these conferences to be so energizing and and so exciting because as an open source project, you know, you're interacting with people over the Slack channel or over, you know, email or, or, or something like that. To actually meet them in person really is a different kind of relationship. And so every time we go to KubeCon, you know, we'll talk to people. People we'll have people come up to us and say, "Hey, we're using Linkerd in production," and like it's it's been really awesome. Or they'll say, "Oh, well, we found this bug and we need to fix it," or or whatever. But like just having a human being in front of you saying, "Hey, we're using your thing. We're building, you know, our job, our livelihoods, our careers are being built on top of Linkerd." That's such an energizing conversation to have. So really, what I am excited about is the hallway track and and talking to people who are using Linkerd in production, you know, to do their jobs, to, to build their careers and their livelihoods. And the talks are nice, and <laughs> I do attend them, but really it's, it's the conversations with Linkerd adopters that, that is what I'm looking forward to. All right, last question. This is somewhat out of self-interest. So my world is, is kind of understanding how developers adopt things and, and buy things and businesses around developer marketing. So I try to understand how are people making sales decisions? How are they making marketing decisions? What have you learned about developer marketing? And I mean, you alluded to this earlier that the engineers are making more and more of the buying process and probably it's shifted away from this CIO that is making a decision from on high. It's it's gotten pushed out to the edges of the organization. How has that changed the actual sales strategy for a successful enterprise co- software company? Like, how are you thinking about things today? Well, I can only really talk about it in the context of open source, but certainly for open source adoption, the moment that anything has a whiff of marketing or sales in it, you immediately see people run away. So <laughs> what's been most effective for us, and again, you know, talking purely about open source adoption, is having kind of authentic engineer-to-engineer conversations and just being very clear and transparent about, you know, what's happening in the project and, and whether we can or cannot get to your feature request in the next, you know, six days, six weeks, six months, whatever it is. The moment that there's a, like a marketing person in the, you know, like trying to talk to you, every engineer is like, ah, I don't want to, you know, they're going to try and sell me on something. So to the extent that what open source is really good at is, you know, at least from my kind of high level view is it's really kind of a marketing tool, right? It's a way of getting your product into the brains of engineers, but you can't treat it the same way that you, you know, you can't build up a team of like growth hackers and, and, you know, or kind of content marketer. Well, content marketers you can kind of do. You can't treat it the same way as you, as you treat kind of standard lead, lead gen enterprise. So that's been, I guess I wouldn't say that's been a big learning for us because that felt very natural to us as a bunch of open source nerds, but it's built, it's really been driven home every time we do anything kind of that is marketing e at Buoyant, we just have to be, you know, very careful and very clear about what the boundaries are between kind of the, you know, the Buoyant marketing kind of treatment and the open source treatment. William Morgan, thank you for coming back on Software Engineering Daily. Always a pleasure to talk about the latest in Linkerd and the service mesh. Jeff, it's been a real pleasure. Let's keep doing it. Absolutely. (laughs) Wow. 